Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario government plans to remove the post-secondary requirement for new police recruits. Should the education threshold actually be higher for would-be police officers? We'll talk about that. 90% of the population of Ontario live on a peninsula bounded by three of the Great Lakes. So why is wind not part of the power discussions for this province? John Michael McGrath, a digital media producer with TVO, will join us and talk about that. And what can Taiwan teach Canada about fighting foreign interference? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An announcement yesterday by the Ford government uh, that's, uh, well, raising some eyebrows for a couple of different reasons. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says the province is uh, eliminating tuition fees for the basic constable training programs at the Ontario Police College in Aylmer. That's a good idea. We need more police officers. Okay. Uh, That's to expand enrollment, he says. And then also, uh, he's talking about, well, lowering the bar, as some people have categorized it. Here's what the Premier had to say. We'll be introducing legislation that, if passed, will eliminate the post-secondary education requirement to become a police officer, clearing a path for more people to consider a career in policing. And we're immediately expanding the number of recruits that can be trained every year by adding 140 new recruits at the Ontario Police College in 2023 and another 420 by the end of next year. Together, these measures will help attract new recruits, break down financial barriers that may have stopped people from becoming a police officer, and build a pipeline of police officers ready to serve and push back against the growing tide of crime. Uh, okay, on that, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the things the Premier just uh, unwrapped there for us, uh, because there's a lot of concern about some of these issues. Uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Michael Kempa. Michael is an Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Always, Bill. So if there's a consensus, and I think there is generally here, that, okay, maybe, yeah, we do need police officers uh, now, at numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Is lowering the bar for qualifications really the best way to go about this? Okay, so first of all, let me give you the idealist or academic argument. Okay. Uh, it absolutely is not. And we know this because the largest inquiry into policing in Canada, the Mass Casualty Commission that reported only last month, uh, concluded that it is absolutely essential that we have that criteria of university or post-secondary education for police officers who attract more of the right types of people to the police organization and remake the culture of that organization as a key pillar in the provincial plans for community safety and well-being. So the idealist academic argument is you put the education up front. Then there's the practical side to it. It seems to me that Doug Ford has made up his mind. They're dropping this criterion. Um, So somebody like me, I can either take my jacks home and say that's awful, and this is another example of the premier doing the wrong thing in criminal justice policy, or I could say, you know, I get it, premier. You want police officers in there. You feel that there is a shortage. It is hard for people to get involved. At least compromise. Why not put then the education on the back end, hire police officers and incentivize their career long learning, continue their studies, offer scholarships to police officers to carry on with their education, make it a criteria for promotions. There's a couple of ways to do this, even if it's not necessarily the academic or theoretical or idealist best way. 
Well, and because, and as you've just described, Michael, I've, I've known in the past a number of people that have gone into police service, and and that's essentially the path they follow. Notwithstanding the fact that they they meet those requirements, they go through the police college in Elmer, and and they get their jobs in whatever community it is. But their education is continuing, and and this and the minister's comments, and not the premier, but the minister of public safety's comments yesterday, I just found almost egregious. Said, you know, we you don't really need a bachelor of arts degree to be a police officer. In other words, he's basically Basically demeaning the idea of education, uh, notwithstanding, it seems to run exactly contrary to the report that you just cited. Well, not, and that report is the big one, and it's not the only one that's concluded the same thing. Justice Akabuchi, who looked into police use of force, finds that police officers with post-secondary education are much less likely to have complaints brought against them over the course of their careers. Um, police education studies across the board generally show that satisfaction is higher for police officers with that background education because they do better within the police organization and get further with their careers and have more meaningful interactions with community members and other agencies that are obviously involved, like health and education and community safety and well-being. So, I mean, the minister is entitled to his opinion but I would just say if we've invested tens of millions of dollars into these inquiries and reviews, for goodness sakes, why would we not follow their conclusions? And if we have to compromise, let's come up with something that at least accomplishes some of these objectives. And and let's deal with the problem here. And because the, both the premier and the minister mentioned this yesterday about attracting people into the profession. Uh, and I understand that. I'm hearing that from a number of different communities these days. Uh, but I, I don't have the scientific research that you just quoted here, Michael. I've, read, I've heard that report. That was some time ago. But the other element to this is anecdotal information. Uh, I don't hear anybody saying I, I wanted to be a police officer, but I can't because I, I can't go to community college. Well, I hear a lot of people saying, you know what, I don't want to get into that profession because of all the, the negative press we're getting, you know, about police and, and you know, it's defund police and a number of different things that are going on these days. Uh, police seem to have a very negative opinion in in, off, in some segments of the community right now. Uh, there, there's uh, accusations of racism within the ranks and without, etc. It seems as if the problem those problems, the government just doesn't seem to want to acknowledge or deal with those. We're just going to figure, okay, we'll make it easier to get the uniform on. I, I'm not so sure that's the right road to follow here. Well, it's not the right road to follow. And again, this is the conclusion, not just even in Canada, um, where they've gone. It's everywhere in the Western democracies that policing is going through at various times right now. It's a low in community confidence. So there's a crisis, there's sort of these cyclical ebbs and flows in poor community perceptions of the policing. Right now, it's a very much a low point. And to fix that, you can't just say, well, let's have more people join the organization without changing anything. Rather, you'd want to remake the organization so that it becomes a more attractive place for people to go and work. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. The better the people that you're able to recruit, the more desirable and remade the organization becomes, the more excellent people the organization continues to recruit over time. So I'm saying that it's better to front load that education, and that's the conclusion of all of this research and these inquiries. But if we're not going down that pathway, let's at least come up with something, some form of a compromise, if for no other reason than for the premier and his solicitor general to be consistent with their own pending policing legislation. In 2019, they brought forward the Community Safety and Policing Act, which got this whole ball rolling on requiring 
uh, post-secondary education for police officers. Now, that act is still not proclaimed three years later. We're still waiting on the regulations that would bring it into force. What else are we planning to water down over the course of the next six months? So maybe to reassure people like me who watch the government very closely on this process of regulations drafting, let's compromise a little bit and put some of the education incentives in after police are hired if we're not going to do it before. There was a time, and I'm going to give a little historical perspective here, and I'm going to go way, way, way back to my high school days, which is quite a long time ago now. Uh, But the requirement then was grade 10. Uh, And you could actually, after grade 10, apply as a cadet, uh, go to the college. And I mean, you know, but it still took a year or two for you to actually, you know, become a fully invested police officer. But over the years, uh, that, that, that requirement and those, those qualifications have gone up and up and up because policing is far more complex than it was 25, 30 years ago. Uh, you're dealing with all sorts of mental health issues, a number of different issues, uh, changing laws, et cetera, et cetera. And, and a number of racial concerns these days too. Uh, which is why I think they they put the bar as high as it is, and I don't think it's really that high, really. I mean, it's, you know, a post secondary uh, certificate or degree, and then you can go to police college. Uh, that seemed to be something that people were comfortable with. I, I don't understand why the government is focusing on that right now as as a reason for or a, a, a possible way to actually increase recruitment. Well, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. I mean, the police requirements, the standards, are not the same as they were in 1960 and 1970. Because the world looks nothing like it did in 1960, 1970. You know, there's the small matter of, for example, the Internet uh, that has come up in the interim that has made the job of policing that much more complex and difficult. There's the fact that we now have a population of just about 40 million in this country of a much more diverse composition, far more complicated, a much more complicated economy. The skills required to police that society are far greater. And I think that's a good thing. It should be embraced as a profession with very high standards and attracts the best and brightest in our society to remake that culture as a very modern, forward-looking organization that is a key pillar in these programs that we are now required to develop in our cities for community safety and well-being, working with mental health, working with schools, working with the hospital system and so forth to produce community safety and well-being. And of course, enforcement is still a part of that. We can't forget that. There's another element to this that nobody mentioned yesterday. uh, And and I I wanted to get your read on this as well. For the most part, because you heard the the clip we played, Michael, just before we started our conversation, Uh, you know, so many new officers, so many new cadets, et cetera. And and that's good. And and I support that. I'm not one of these defund the police people. Police play a key role in society and in communities. And, and, uh, you know, we've we've got to enhance that that profession and, and give them as much help as they can. But my question is, I guess the most obvious, who's going to pay for this? I mean, the province doesn't hire police officers. The municipalities do. And I don't know a municipality in this province right now, Michael, uh, that isn't cash-strapped right now because of their economic situations. Uh, they're hard-pressed to hire uh, to pay the officers that they already have. Who's going to pay for new officers? The province? I, I didn't hear that yesterday. Well, that's part of the issue there is you, you can, of course, create the supply chain, that pipeline, as the premier says, of new police officers. But if there's no market for them, if they can't be hired by the cities because fiscal winter is upon us, um, recovering from the stalls to the economy of COVID-19, uh, what difference will it make? And this is not not something we haven't seen before from the province. For example, we were, again, we're requiring cities to come up with plans for community safety and well-being. 
Okay, but where's the money to pay for all of these very complicated programs? It's all well and good if we make a little uh, statement of objectives for community safety and well-being, but you need money to implement the plans. Same with police hiring. So I would like everybody to sit down, for example, with the Federation of Municipalities and the province to come up with a funding model for where the tax base money is going to come from to pay for all of these things. Well, there was a plan... I guess it was about five, six years ago, wasn't it, where there was a 50-50 uh, split between the provinces and the municipalities? You hire more officers, we'll pay half of their salary. And there was there was a sunset clause on it. I don't know if it lasted a, a year or two or something like that. But that sort of initiative, I think, is, is maybe the catalyst for this. But the, that doesn't seem to be on the table right now. We're not hearing about it this time. You're exactly right. The sunset has long closed on that particular arrangement. We would need something similar. And I would say, if, if we're being smart about it, Province say should offer money to municipalities for hiring police officers to those municipalities that also have the best plans for community safety and well-being. So if you can show the province how your plans for hiring police officers fit in with your city's plans for what they call CSWB, community safety and well-being, those are the municipalities that should get that cash injection from the province. The ones that are just saying, well, we want to hire a bunch of police officers and we don't really have a plan for them. Um, that's not a very good business model to inject any cash into. Michael, would we be better served if some of this money that the province is talking about was invested in uh, things like recruitment within a number of the diverse ethnic communities that we have in this country? I mean, the problem a lot of people have with police these days is that the, the, the composition of the police services in communities does not reflect the community themselves. Uh, there's that. And then, of course, there's there's education about those communities themselves, whether it's, uh, you know, racial, LGBTQ, I, there's a number of different issues here right now. And and the number one criticism I hear oftentimes is is these, many of these officers just don't understand, don't relate, or don't know exactly who or what they're dealing with. Well, that's a big part of it. I mean, if we're saying, and police organizations are saying this, it's not sort of a professor's fantasy. Yeah, yeah. The police organizations are saying, we need women, we need to be more reflective of the community, racialized members, indigenous members in particular in many uh, urban centers. How are we going to recruit? Well, the problem is very many uh, people from these so-called hard-to-reach groups are not very keen to join the police organization because they don't perceive it as a culture that is very welcoming of their contribution to the police organization. This is the conclusion, again, of the Mass Casualty Commission. We're not talking about just outright overt racism on the part of a small number of people or sexism. It's systemic. The only way to break something down that's systemic is obviously step by step, and you start with incentivizing recruitment of the bravest people who are willing to get into an organization and put up with difficulty while they've come to be change agents. I meet them in my classes all the time. Uh, it's an important discussion. We need to have this. I'm just not so sure, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, that the province is going down the right road. I'm only hoping, uh, you know, that they're open-minded to, to to do some things here and maybe listen to some of the input from people like yourself that have some expertise in this. Michael, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. Radio, thank you, Bill. Take care. Michael Kempa, who's a professor, of course, of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, and there's some food for thought there. I... I don't want to just dismiss this whole thing because I, I think the province understands that there's a problem here and that they're trying to do something about it. Good on them. But I'm not so sure this is the way to go. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
energy sources going into the future. I know the province is talking a lot about EVs and, and you know, on the grid and the impact that's going to have. And that's, that's all well and good. But we're talking about the pressure on this. And it's, it's energy generation now that we're talking about here, not the usage of it. Uh, which has got to be part of that discussion, the greater discussion. And uh, the, the federal government now is, is making some noises as if they're, uh, and so is the provincial government here in Ontario for that matter, uh, moving back in towards nuclear energy and maybe reconstituting some of the, the nuclear plants that have been actually scheduled for shutdown. That's one element of this. But what about the other sources? What about wind energy? There was a big push on that in the McGuinty government some time ago that just seems to have fizzled out. And and I don't hear this government, this particular government, even talking about it, either federally or provincially. And, uh, you know, we have the raw materials here, it seems to be. Uh, and, and we have the the setting that would actually make this work. But nobody seems to want to jump into this with any degree of, of, of I guess, commitment to it. Uh, John Michael McGrath writes an interesting piece about this at the, uh, on the TVO.org webpage right now. John, of course, is a digital media producer with TVO. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the piece. John, great to have you on the show again. Thanks for this. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Ontario is letting the offshore wind revolution pass it by. Um, I, I don't know what happened with the McGuinty government's decision to do this. I got a pretty good idea why the Ford government's not too interested in this. Uh, but are we are we missing an opportunity here with wind energy? I, I really think we are. And, you know, the, the there were arguments, there were certainly very fair arguments uh, for uh, maybe being cautious about uh, renewable energy and wind power uh, in the Great Lakes uh, 15 years ago when the McGuinty government first uh, paused the, the deployment of renewable energy in the Great Lakes. Those scientific and technical questions are all I think basically understood right now. Uh, you know, the, the countries like Denmark, Norway, Germany are building massive offshore wind farms in the North Sea in an environment that is at least as hostile as the Great Lakes. And, uh, you know, these wind turbines are getting increasingly huge, uh, increasingly efficient. Uh, offshore wind power is more reliable than uh, onshore wind. And uh, it is possible, at least in theory, to uh, build these wind farms far enough from land that you wouldn't necessarily see them, which is, of course, one of the, the major objections to wind power. Uh, you know, the uh, as you said in, in your intro, uh, the Ford government, not really interested in wind power, has been pretty uh, antagonistic to wind power uh, since it came into office in 2018. Uh, but the liberals were not actually uh, big fans of it either when it came to uh, anybody proposing to build uh, offshore wind anywhere near liberal ridings. So um, at the moment, uh, it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope for uh, any kind of change in policy in this province. One of those dis discussions and debates, though, as, as you well remember, I guess, uh, John, was uh, if it's not windy, you're not, you're not generating power. That's all there is to it. And, and, and that could happen. And, and the question is, well, can you, can you produce it and store it? Uh, have, have there been advancements in that era? Uh, there have been. Um, I'll just I'll back up one second and say that, you know, uh, with onshore wind, like the kind of wind turbines you'll see basically if you drive through farm country anywhere in southern Ontario these days, um, you know, there there is uh, what's called a, like an intermittency problem where, you know, a, a wind turbine might only be generating power for, let's say, 25 to 35% of the time. But uh, the winds, uh, especially once you get substantially far offshore, uh, once you get into the Great Lakes, uh, the winds become much, uh, not just stronger, but much more reliable. So uh, 
offshore wind uh, projects, especially ones that are very far offshore, uh, are now showing uh, what the, the, the term in the industry is called a capacity factor. Uh, that's more like 50 per, 45 to 50% optimistically. Uh, so right there, uh, doing offshore wind as opposed to onshore wind means that you have to worry less about storage. Uh, now, uh, the uh, Ontario Clean Air Alliance is... Uh, issued a report uh, just last week uh, that really prompted my column. Uh, and they argue that basically the the offshore wind resource in the Great Lakes is sufficient to totally replace uh, Ontario's nuclear fleet, for example. And I think that's probably optimistic uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, we we uh, the, the, the improvement in battery technologies that we have seen even just in the last five years have probably, I think it's fair to say, solved the problem of like what happens if there's no wind for a few hours uh, or, you know, by the time, you know, maybe in the next five years, we've, we've solved the problem of even, you know, a few days of really light winds where we still have a big problem to solve. This is why I'm not as optimistic as the Clean Air Alliance is that there's a big seasonal variation in wind power that uh, we don't get as much uh, wind uh, at all times of the year. And you need to be able to figure that out and, and storing electricity for many months of uh, uh, potentially you know lower winds, uh, that really doesn't seem to be uh, technologically feasible right yet. So as I say, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot we could do with wind power. I, I am not convinced by the argument that uh, we could totally replace uh, Ontario's nuclear fleet, for example. Uh, but as, as you mentioned in the piece here, you know, for instance, the examples we may know, and our listeners may know uh, close to home here, anybody who drives down towards Windsor from here, around the Chatham-Kent area, there's a huge uh, farm uh, that's just off the, uh, the 401 there. Uh, when we go up to, to Collingwood Blue, uh, up in Shelburne there, there's a huge uh, wind farm that stretches across there. They they tried to actually uh, increase that up around uh, Collingwood, and the, and the local council fought it. And uh, with the support of the provincial government, they put, uh, put a moratorium on it. But the offshore stuff that you're talking about and that the industry is talking about right now uh, seems to be a different animal. I, I know there's been improvements in actually how uh, the towers are actually constructed and, and, and secured. Uh, and as you say, the further offshore you go, the chance of, of having a consistent uh, source there seems a, a lot better than it is if you're in the farmland, for instance, in Ontario. Right. And, and uh, you know, the turbines are also simply getting much, much larger. I mean, the the, the kinds of wind turbines that uh, we were building back when the Liberal government first started uh, really pushing uh, green energy – you know, you might see a, a, a one and a half megawatt turbine, a three megawatt turbine, um, and the the size of the turbines that they're now talking about for offshore wind are literally, in some cases, ten times as large. Um, and you know, it, it really has been well. You know, in the headline for my column, I called it a you know a revolution in wind power. It really has been um, uh, just a, a, an enormous uh, expansion of what is possible. And you see other jurisdictions are, in fact, uh, pursuing this. Uh, the, the Biden administration in the, the U.S. Uh, wants uh, 30 gigawatts of wind power installed by uh, 2030. Uh, just for comparison's sake, uh, Ontario, uh, on its highest demand day ever, uh, consumed 27 gigawatts. So uh, that's not a perfect apples-to-apples -apples comparison, but I, I hope it gives your listeners a sense of the scale. Um, and uh, in Ohio, they are, in fact, talking about building a uh, an offshore wind uh, farm in Lake Erie. Um, so, you know, despite uh, Ontario uh, 
in some ways thinking of itself as this, you know, progressive green energy leader, uh, as far as offshore wind is concerned, we're going to get lapped by uh, a Republican governor in Ohio. It's Yeah, interesting. And uh, But one, one final thing, I know we're kind of short on time here. Does it have to be either or? Because that's the way this debate always seems to go. As you mentioned, uh, there's a very strong argument for wind power right now, but there are holes in that argument. And you, you point them out in the piece that's on TV.org, TVO rather.org. Why do we always put our eggs in, in one energy basket here and just say it's good, this is going to be the way it is? And then five, six years later, we say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, maybe we have to rethink this right now. Can, is there a hybrid model here, if I can use that terminology? I, I think there's going to have to be. Uh, look, the reality is that if we want to electrify our cars and we want to electrify uh, the heating for like homes and offices, uh, and you know that that really does seem to be the, the cheapest, fastest way to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, from those sectors, then uh, there is more than enough room for both uh, some new nuclear in Ontario, which we are already building, and uh, new renewables, whether that is solar or wind uh, or, or other, uh, you know, the province is talking about hydroelectric dams in the far north. Um, we are going to need a lot of all of it. Uh, the, we, we probably need to at least double the amount of electricity generation that we have. And that's going to also mean like lots of new transmission lines, that kind of thing. So there is more than an, enough pie to go around, if I could put it that way. Um, and and I think it would be foolish to uh, bet all of our uh, energy futures uh, on just one source of electricity. Uh, go to TVO.org to, uh, to read the whole piece, and uh, it's, it's thought-provoking. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Take care. John Michael McGrath, who is a digital media producer with TVO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may remember on the show a week or so ago, uh, we told you about a, a Canadian contingent of, of MPs, of, of all party stripes, by the way, uh, who were making a trip over to Taiwan. As a matter of fact, Global's Jeff Semple was there. We talked with Jeff uh, while they were over there. And and one of the stated purposes of this trip was to, to learn how the Taiwanese are dealing with foreign interference, a.k.a. Chinese government interference, uh, because obviously it's a thing here in Canada, as it should be. We're finally starting to shed the light, uh, shine the light on this, uh, but we're not quite sure exactly how to pursue this. Uh, to talk about this, please to welcome back to the program Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish is a, an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, professor, great to have you back with us. Thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Always good to talk to you. As uh, as Jeff Semple from Global, who was with that contingent, mentioned to us last week, you know, we're we're trying to figure our way, find our way. How do we deal with this foreign interference? And essentially, I think the response that they got from the Chinese officials or the Taiwanese officials was, uh, "Hold my beer. We'll show you. We've been doing this a lot longer than you have." Uh, there are lessons to be learned here, aren't there? There really are, and the, the there's some technical lessons and there's some long term political lessons. And where where the, the the class commences, I would say, for this is that Canada really has to remember that we are a Pacific nation, right? That we are we are part of uh, several alliances and, and economic cooperation zones that are in the Pacific, and this is really important remembering when we're dealing with. Taiwan, because Taiwan has also expressed a lot of solidarity and cooperation to other Pacific nations who have routinely been uh, targets of mainland Chinese uh, interference over the years. So, you know, there's there's sort of two parts to this. There's sort of the practical measures of how Taiwan needs to be consistently prepared 
for Chinese interference. So we're talking about jets flying overhead, quite literally. Uh, you know, the anytime that there's foreign delegations that come into Taiwan, China will usually send some of its air force nearby to intimidate or to demonstrate just exactly uh, how much uh, strength they have in the game. And then the other thing they also do is uh, they, they go beyond just uh, trying to influence politics in Taiwan, but by actually detaining journalists and uh, activists and people who have made political waves, uh, the Chinese officials have, uh, have, you know, continued to detain Taiwanese uh, citizens for their for their views if they're, if they're ever near mainland China. So there's a, a long balancing act here of trying to be practically prepared, but also to be cooperatively prepared. And that really requires two elements of of Canadian uh, well, bureaucratic infrastructure to step up, step up. And one is that is that's really trusting and investing in our military intelligence to say, here are the threats, here's what we need to do to respond, let's be ready for it. And also to really try to steer Global Affairs Canada in a direction where we can be reminded that we've got commitments in the Pacific so that uh, some of these uh, other partnerships with, don't go the way of uh, China, we continue to support Taiwan. Have we been ignoring, it maybe is the right word here, our Pacific responsibilities here? I, we haven't paid much attention to it. I mean, there's a lot of concern about what's going on in the Arctic and the East Coast, and we seem to be Eurocentric for the longest time. Uh, I know there's some discussion about eight or 10 years ago about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but that was more of an economic partnership deal. But are we being reminded now that, hey, you've got some responsibility here too? Absolutely. I mean, the the actor in the Pacific right now uh, is sort of the North Central and, and towards Asia is is the U.S. Navy. That is that is the 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 big brother in the in the area. And then sort of as you get further south, Australia kind of considers it to be its backyard as well. But Canada really has lost out on uh, being in a position to cooperate with regional uh, countries in the region and also in the Pacific. Let's not forget that one of the the key areas that China is trying to uh, expand uh, and create more influences is controlling waters in the Pacific. And interestingly enough, Bill, this comes down to trying to get political partnership and influence over small island nations, from Fiji to the Solomon Islands, Tonga, Kiribati, places that many of us would actually struggle to try to find on a map. These are strategic interest zones because small islands with huge, huge territories of, of water that uh, in some cases, China will sign an economic agreement. Part of the agreement is like, do you mind if we park our, our, our naval ships there for three to four months and we'll do all these exercises? Well, no one's going to bother them if they're if they're in a, a national waters and, and no one's really paying attention to it. And this is where Taiwan has also tried to to create influences in the region through uh, through various economic cooperation that ranges from agriculture to healthcare to to all sorts of things that many countries in the Pacific desperately need. And uh, and Canada's but just been remarkably mute over it. And there's there's a lot of lot of room to expand in there as well. One of the other elements I know that they discussed extensively uh, with the Taiwanese officials was uh, was the, the, the Chinese strategy, which is essentially divide and conquer. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, it's a two-pronged message of disinformation. First of all, China is a wonderful country, great people, uh, have nothing but the best of intentions. Uh, and then, then divide, uh, you know, 
different, uh, I guess, components of, of whatever society was, Taiwanese and, in our case, Canadian, uh, through political purposes, uh, ethnic purposes, whatever the case might be. Uh, and, and it's all about infighting and then simply moving in in situations like this. It's it, As the Taiwanese apparently told us, it, it's, it's a consistent game plan, and you've got to be able to watch it and analyze it as it's an unfolding. Yeah, and one thing we're seeing here with our own uh, experience of Chinese influence is that there's there's certain strategic pieces that are put into place that that try to create uh, interference uh, at different levels, from municipal levels to charitable organizations. Uh, we mentioned the Trudeau Foundation a couple of weeks ago uh, to to trying to find ways to to even demonstrate influence within. The, the federal, if not provincial governments. And then if it's exposed, well, then the opposition parties will, will basically able to make hay out of that. And if it's not exposed, then, uh, then China continues to have uh, a level of influence in those areas. And the same thing goes in Taiwan, that by trying to drum up fear, uh, within the Taiwanese population about the, whoever is sitting, uh, it, as the president of Taiwan and their government to try to divide and say, well, you know, here's 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 the here's all the bad stuff that uh, your government's doing to you and if we just sort of created a better pro mainland china policy things would get better that's a lot of the narrative that that comes out of uh, taiwan the taiwan beijing uh, relations but you know the long game here is is we're also kind of concerned as we've been watching over the last year that this demonstration of military force just seems to be increasing between between China and and Taiwan, and I don't think we're we're, we're in a position where we're going to see a, a hot war breakout anytime soon. But it's certainly going to be an area where China could create a disruption uh, in Taiwan. And I'm thinking down the road, uh, we we've, we've just seen you know how the West has responded. To inter- to the the war in Ukraine, so you know Russia comes in and there's support, but a lot of that support really comes down to to handheld anti tank missiles or you know those sort of weapons. If China was to invade Taiwan or to create any military aggression right now, the U.S. has uh, a commitment to to respond, and and this isn't just over the shoulder rocket launchers. This is the U.S. Navy, and that mm-hmm. is a real opponent to to tangle with that's uh that's uh, you know huge huge amount of force that would that would come back in and my guess is that we're going to see this continued intimidation as long as tensions remain between beijing washington and, and other states like canada and us uh, the uk and then wait until around the next american election uh and if there's any sort of indication that republicans are going to make gains pay attention to see if China actually does something in Taiwan, because I think right now they're measuring the response that the West has given uh, to the war in Ukraine and any sort of uh, lack of steadfastness to to stand by our allies in the Pacific, that'll be an opportunity to create that political mess, that muckiness and disruption. And that's that tends to be when uh, when China feels uh, Beijing feels to be in the most control and the most power. Exactly. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're just about out of time, but that's uh, sort of the chilling proposal and proposition. Uh, Professor, as always, thanks for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. Always a pleasure. You too. Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.